All right, once again, I see that uh, you've survived time Sunday, time change Sunday. This is always uh, a lower Sunday when uh, we lose that hour of sleep, and it's always a wondering, uh, are our clocks really going to make that automatic change during the night? Um, and then there was controversy. I was following people on Twitter last night. Some of them had it backwards. Make sure you turn your clock back an hour tonight so you'll be on time for church tomorrow. And all, I, no, that's, that's wrong. I, you know, that's, that's not right. And then there was one guy that said... Um, he had a Baptist clock. He said it refused to change. So there's uh, all kinds of different things that go along with this time change. But I'm glad that you're here. Uh, lost an hour of sleep, but you're here. Great that you're here today. We're going to continue in the sermon series on the passion of Jesus as we move in closer every step, every Sunday towards the Easter event. And before we get there, we're going to walk with Christ through some of the darkest moments of his life. Uh, we began a few weeks ago. As they celebrated, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. That he took that occasion then to incorporate the, the, the Lord's Supper from the, the Passover. And he shared with them the bread and the cup. And he said, these represent my body that will be shed for you. That, that will be given up as a sacrifice for you. They didn't understand the full significance of it then. We have that experience now. So we began there from that night with the Passover in the upper room. Then we see where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he's talking to, to Peter right, as they were moving towards the Garden of Gethsemane and talking about the fact that they would deny him and turn against him. And Peter makes the bold statement, no, I, I will never deny you. I'll go to prison with you. I'll die for you. And we know what happened. Before the rooster crowed that night that, that Peter denied him three times. And we found out though that uh, when pride leads us to a failure, failure doesn't have to be final. Because Peter found restoration from Jesus Christ as he repented of his sin and confessed that. And he came back and he was used as the founder of the church. Then last week we saw the agonizing scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where I think that Jesus' full humanity was on display. He knew that he had come from the glories of heaven, laying aside those glories the Bible tells us. Uh, to be obedient to the Father's will. But when he looked into what he called the cup and he saw all the suffering that would be there that he would have to undergo, his humanity wrestled with that. And, and he had to come to that point in agony of crying out, Father, let this cup pass, if you will. But if not, then your will be done and not mine. And we know the reality of that, that he accepted that. So then today we find ourselves moving to another stage in his experience here, moving towards the cross and that's the sting of betrayal. When we see here the betrayal of Judas as he betrays Jesus Christ with a kiss. And he sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you have ever known the betrayal of a friend or a loved one, somebody that you greatly appreciated, somebody you had a close relationship with, and that person stung you with a betrayal, you know how that hurts. And I think you also can identify with Jesus Christ in the passage of Scripture for today. Let's look at John's Gospel, the 18th chapter, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples so Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. 
Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Powerful words once again. As we move further into the journey that Jesus makes to the cross where he ultimately would give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. What do we find in this passage of scripture that John tells us as he writes his gospel? Well, we just simply look at the story and look at the scene. If you can have spiritual eyes and capture this in your mind's eye. Look at the things that we see here. And then listen to the dialogue about this thing of betrayal. First thing that's obvious here in this story is the betrayal of Judas. In verse 2, the scripture says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. We're talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. We've already talked about the fact that this is where Jesus went many times uh, for a quiet time of reflection, prayer time with the Father. He found peace there. He had solace as as he went in, in communion with God. But here we see at that serene setting, it turns into the act of betrayal. Judas was motivated by greed when he finally came to realize that the kingdom that Jesus was going to establish was not a kingdom that would be brought about by revolting against the Roman government and setting up an earthly kingdom. And the thrones upon which the disciples would sit and judge was not going to be in this world, but would be those of a kingdom of a world that would come another time. And so when we enter into this scene and we see the betrayal of Jesus, we know he has already sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's difficult to calculate how much that was because we're not quite sure of the silver coins that were used. Most people think it was a denarius, like a day's pay for a common laborer. But one thing that we do know is that he really sold Jesus out very cheaply for those 30 pieces of silver. When you go back to the Old Testament in Exodus 21:32, some of the guidelines and regulations about how they would live in covenant with one another. There was one commandment or regulation there that if a servant of somebody was gored by an animal that somebody else owned, then that, ser- that servant was worth 30 pieces of silver. That's what had to be paid for that. So Jesus was actually betrayed, sold out by Judas for the amount of what it would cost for an injured slave. Now, when we look at Judas, we have to ask always the obvious questions. Did Judas have any other option in this, in this whole uh, role that he had to play? Did he have any other option? Could he have opted out of doing this? Well, you know, we can debate that until eternity. But what we do know is that, is that Judas 
betrayed Jesus, even after being with him for all that period of time, at least three years that Jesus invested in him. He heard Jesus teach. He walked with Jesus. He shared meals with Jesus. He saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw the compassion that Jesus had. They probably slept on the same hillside and maybe even in some of the homes that were open to them in hospitality. But the bottom line was, was was that Judas did not have the same heartbeat that Jesus had because Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. And that wasn't the kingdom that Judas Judas was looking for. Now, Jesus always knew the truth about Judas. We go back to John chapter 6, verses 70 to 71. Jesus said, Have I not chosen you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. Now, it's interesting there how how the the words run in different translations, that he's either a devil or he is the devil or has a devil in him, some translations say. But there are two other things to notice about those words. First, it takes place six months before the cross. And secondly, when Jesus talks about Judas in this way, the disciples did not know that it was Judas that Jesus was making reference to. So what happened to Judas? Well, at least on two occasions we read that the Bible says Satan entered Judas. In Luke 22, verse 3, the Scripture says Satan entered Judas just before he approached the chief priest and offered to betray Jesus. Then in John 13, 27, the Scripture says that Satan entered Judas just as he took the bread at the Last Supper And just before he left to lead the chief priest to find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. So what are we to do about this, about Judas' betrayal? I think the bottom line of it is very simple. The heart of Judas never was right. He never truly believed. Whatever his original motives had been for following Jesus, his heart grew dark. And cold and hard towards Jesus. And secondly, his unbelief made him a prime target for Satan. And there's a great warning there to us. That if you become sometimes disillusioned and disappointed in what God does or does not do, you're a prime candidate for Satan to enter into your life, just like he did for Judas. His anger, his greed, his frustration... His disillusionment all conspired to make him an easy target for Satan. When did Satan enter Judas? Well, certainly there's twice in the Scripture that it's indicated that. But I think in a deeper sense, Satan had Judas all along. I think Judas was the easiest target that Satan ever had. And we need to take a lesson from him. Now, in the midst of this scene of betrayal, we also have to look at what Judas brought with him into the garden. Look at verse 3. So Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers, some officials from the high priest and Pharisees. And they were carrying, and interesting, notice what they were carrying, torches, lanterns, and weapons. Why? Well, I think there are at least three responses that they were making preparation for as they brought that stuff with them. First of all, they were prepared for deception. 
They knew that those who followed after Jesus were fiercely loyal to him. And they knew that they knew that they wanted to kill Jesus and do away with him. And so they thought that there might be deception that somebody, one of the disciples maybe would step up and take the place of Jesus and say, I'm Jesus. And so they wanted to make sure that they were prepared for an act of deception or loyalty that somebody would take the place of Jesus. And so the other part about that, not only did they come armed to the tooth with torches, lanterns, and weapons prepared for deception, but they also had the arrangement made that Judas would identify Jesus and betray him with that kiss. In other Gospels, particularly in Mark, the Scripture says that Judas went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, as if to say, your beloved teacher, and then he kissed Jesus. And it's interesting that the word there used to describe kiss does not mean just a, a bus on the cheek because we look at, uh, in, in Palestine today, you look in that part of the country and you notice that, that men greet each other all the time with a kiss on the cheek. It's a common experience. But this phrase, this phrase that's used in the Greek literally means a close embrace and perhaps several kisses on the cheek. And it was common back then as it is today. See, a kiss between a student and his teacher was a mark of respect. Inferiors kissed the back of their superior's hand. If they were above the level of a servant, they could kiss the palm of the hand. Those who sought a pardon from an angry monarch would kiss his feet. Slaves often would kiss the feet of their masters. We've taken that over into our culture today, and we use that phrase, kissing up to somebody. You're kissing up to somebody, then you, you're wanting to gain their favor. You want, them to, you want them to buddy up with you. You want them to do something for you. You want a favor from them. Bottom line is the kiss on the cheek then was a, was a sign of affection and intimacy. And by Judas kissing Jesus, it was the worst of false affection and the sting of betrayal. Betrayal is always a terrible thing. But when it comes with a kiss, when it comes from a friend... It stings, maybe for a long, long time, maybe forever. But the interesting thing is, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 50, Jesus simply said, friend, do what you have come for. Interesting, isn't it? They were also coming with the torches, lanterns, and weapons because they expected cowardice on the part of Jesus. This took place during Passover. Passover always took place during the full moon. They had plenty of light by the moon to see. You look over in verse 18, and it says it was also a cold night. That's why they had a fire built. That's where Peter was warming himself. And when the flames came, a blaze of the flame came up again, uh, that was when he was identified. And so being a cold night, it was probably a clear night. So with the full moon and a clear night, they could see very easily. There shouldn't be any problem about that. But they expected that Jesus would be a coward. Even though they saw him speak boldly and make bold declarations about who he was, the I am God and who he was, the Son of God, and make the great statements that he did, talking about the temple and tearing it down and building it in three days, and he would be killed, crucified, but on the third day rise again. But they thought when the moment of decision came that he would run as a coward. But why do they need all these torches? I mean, by the light of the full moon and by a clear night, they could find him. But they expected him to run and that they would need the torches so that they could look behind every rock and under every tree anywhere that Jesus might have run and hid in a cowardly act. 
And then thirdly, they came because they anticipated resistance. Judas came with a detachment of soldiers, verse 4 says. A Roman cohort, a battalion, was 600 Roman soldiers. And in addition to them, there were also, the Scripture says, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They were kind of like the police officers of that group to make sure that the law was truly enforced. So why did hundreds of Roman soldiers and a police force from the Jewish religious leaders come into the garden that night like an army to arrest an unarmed Galilean carpenter? Well, they really recognized that Jesus was no ordinary man. They had heard him. They had seen him. And they knew that he was no ordinary man. Son of God, they weren't sure of that. Fully God, fully man, they weren't sure of that. But they knew that he was no ordinary man. And so they came in full force, prepared to have to do battle to take him away. But they weren't prepared for what happened. Because that's in the second thing we see in this act, and that's the announcement of Jesus. Look at verses 4 through 6. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Only gospel account in which that takes place. you imagine that? All the chief priests, all the religious leaders, 600 Roman soldiers. And when Jesus said, I am he, they fell to the ground. Jesus affirmed three things in his answer. First of all, he announced his deity. Twice he said, I am he. Quite literally translated, I am. Same words that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. When Moses is being sent to the people and then to Pharaoh and he asked who Whose name am I going in? And God said, tell them my name is I Am, the great I Am. It's in John's gospel from which we're reading today that Jesus is quoted as making the seven great I Am statements that he declares. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and all of those statements that he made. He also made another one in in John chapter 8. Jesus really infuriated the Jews when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Literally, he says, before Abraham was born, I am, claiming his deity. And here, once again, he makes that statement. Twice he affirms his deity. And the result was they fell back and fell to the ground. The second thing Jesus did was that he he revealed his authority. He stood there with no fear whatsoever. He wasn't hiding, and he wasn't hiding anything. But he was revealing himself as the Son of God. He was revealing himself as the I am God. He was not a coward, but he was commanding. He was in, he was in complete command of that entire incident. None of that happened without his perfect will allowing it to take place. He was displaying his authority as the I am God. 
And then thirdly, he was fulfilling his word. Look at verses 7 through 9. Again, he asked him, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. The scripture says, this happened so that the words he had spoken will be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. You see, Jesus wanted to make sure that none of the disciples were arrested and that none of them would be put on trial and that ultimately none of them would be crucified along with him. He was making sure that his word was fulfilled. And the next thing we see in, in this story is the reckless courage of Peter. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Why do I call that a reckless display of courage on the part of Peter? For some reason, Peter, one of the disciples, had a sword with him. He draws out that sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant. One man against 600 Roman soldiers, don't you think they were armed to the teeth with swords and spears? And at that moment they were in the very face of Simon Peter? Reckless courage, but that's what we've come to expect from Simon Peter. Impetuous Peter. In Matthew 26, Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Jesus is saying, Peter, we're not fighting that kind of warfare. I was as a spiritual warfare. I could have called 72,000 angels. That's 12 legions of angels. But he said, we're not fighting that kind of battle. The Apostle Paul would pick up on that theme later in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 10 and say the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. He would again refer to that in Ephesians 6.12 by saying, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. You know what Jesus said to the mom? Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 53 says, Just as they took him out of the garden, he said to them, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. You see, the battle that was being fought there was a battle of spiritual forces between light and dark, between good and evil. Now, here's another interesting thing. What about poor Malchus? Had his right ear cut off. What about him? It's interesting that Luke is the only gospel writer who records the healing of Malchus. And that might be because Luke was the physician and he would have taken notice of things like this. Now we would logically think that Jesus reached down and took the ear from off the ground where it was lying there in a bloody mass and reattached it to Malchus' head. But when you look at the Greek and you look at the words, it's an interesting thing that that's not what happened. The Bible really says that Jesus touched where his ear had been. Now remember, this is the I am God, Jesus who said, I am. You know what Jesus did? He didn't reattach the ear 
he recreated another ear when he touched the place where the ear was. Now, what happened to Malchus after that? Who knows? We don't know. I like to think that maybe as they've taken Jesus away, Malchus looks down and there's an ear that once was on his head is on the ground and he feels here and there's a new ear that's there and he knew that Jesus touched where that ear had been severed and there was that new ear. And maybe somehow something began to stir in his heart. I like to think that maybe he watched the crucifixion from some distance that as he saw Jesus die, he thought this was truly the Son of God. Maybe Malchus became a believer. We don't know. But it's nice to think that in it. But we do know that the power of Jesus was revealed in this passage as the I am God. We don't know what happened to Malchus, but we know what happened to Jesus. And that's in his final response. And that's the fourth thing we see in this story. And that's the perspective of Jesus. Look in verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Last week, remember, in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, we talked about Jesus wrestled with the cup, which meant what he had to endure. And what he saw in the cup was loneliness, being separated, separation from God because of sin, becoming sin on our behalf, the agony of the cross and the crucifixion and the shame, all that he would have to endure. And that part of his humanity where he was fully human, fully man, wrestled with the, God, with the will of God for his life, And Jesus ultimately had to come to the point of saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus has come to the place here once again where he is acknowledging that he is accepting of the Father's will. You see, Jesus saw the Father behind everything. In that moment, he didn't see Judas. He saw the Father. He didn't see the angry mob. He saw the Father. Because it was just moments before that that Jesus came to that sense of peace in the Garden of Gethsemane where moments before it had been agony, he came to the sense of peace where he finally submitted his will and he said, Father, not my will but yours be done. And he did so so he would go to the cross and he would die on the cross becoming the perfect substitute for you and me dying in our place because of our sins. Now, we wrap this story up and we look at this scene, one step closer to the cross. Next week, we look at the trials and the mockery of of the trials where Jesus was led. So, what are some spiritual takeaways as we look at this story? Obviously, it's, you know, part of the Easter story, part of the, the gospel account of the life of Jesus, and it's been there for centuries. But what can we take away from that? By asking you the simple question. Where do you see yourself in that scene? Where do you see yourself in that scene? You know, do you identify with the mob? You know, would you have been a part of the soldiers, the priests, the Pharisees? See, there's only two choices about your experience in relationship with Jesus Christ. You're either with him and for him, or you're not with him and you're opposed to him. Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 12, 30, he who is not with me, is against me. And there's no such thing as neutrality. You have to answer the question, you know, where are you in relationship to Jesus Christ? Are you totally with him? Are you opposed to him? Are you trying to claim neutrality? Do you want him as a certain part of your life as Savior but not as Lord? Are you totally defiant against him? Would you have been a part of the mob? 
Where do you stand in that garden scene? Second question I want to ask you is this. Do you identify with Judas the betrayer? And you might be like Simon Peter and say, oh, no, I would never betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank goodness in this country it has not reached the point yet of persecution to where we have a, 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 a saber put to our neck and we're asked, are you a believer? And if you say yes, then your head is literally severed from your body. I think there'd be a lot of people who would renounce Jesus right there. Now, I think it's because we've got a carnal Christianity, a, a casual commitment to Jesus Christ at best. And so don't tell me you would never sell Jesus out. You would never betray him. But let me ask you, what would be your price for selling Jesus out? Would you, would you betray Jesus for money? Would you betray him for a better job? Would you betray him so you could keep the job that you have? Would you betray him so you could save your own skin? Or would you betray him to save a family member? Would you betray him because he didn't live up to your expectations? Would you betray him if you thought you could win the favor of important people? You see, those are realistic questions because I think people betray Jesus Christ every day based on one or more of those questions, circumstances, situations. Can you identify with Judas, the betrayer? The third question I want to ask you is simply this. Are you really committed to the Lord Jesus? Are you ready and willing to be submissive to the Father's will? So that whatever the cup is that God has for you, you're willing to be obedient through the Lordship of Jesus Christ to drink from that cup. I think the Apostle Paul gives us a great challenge of that in Philippians chapter 2 when he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus wrestled with that through his humanity. He wrestled with that obedience. But he finally came to the point of surrender when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Have you reached that point in your life where you're willing to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I don't want to be on the throne of my life anymore, but I want Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life. I want to be totally committed to Jesus Christ. I want to be sold out to Jesus Christ. I don't want to deny him. I don't want to betray him. I want to be totally committed to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was totally committed to the Father's will. He went to the cross. He died for you. The challenge that this gives us today is a challenge to be obedient to, Father, to the Father's will, to be totally committed to Jesus Christ, to be willing to drink from the cup, whatever it is that comes our way. Are you totally committed to the Father's will? Are you totally committed to the Jesus Christ who died for you? Father, thank you for this story in the life of Jesus that once again we relive. Maybe we see it in a different light like never before. Maybe we can take from this the call to, to be obedient to you as, you as Jesus was obedient to you and willing to go to the cross and die in our place. Help us to make the decisions today that we need to make to decide where we are in relationship with Jesus Christ. To make a commitment full and completely of our life to him and live as total believers in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you will give us the wisdom, the courage, the strength, and the faith to do that. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.